listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Ingenious RX is a boutique business-to-business consulting firm leveraging deep pharmacogenomic science and clinical implementation knowledge to help pharmacogenomics stakeholders reduce and remove barriers to pharmacogenomics becoming a clinical standard of care in medication therapy management. To learn how your company can partner with Ingenious RX, email Dr. Becky Winslow at beckywinslow0711 at gmail.com. This is the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. We believe pharmacists are the best positioned providers to lead in PGX. Pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes affect a person's response to drugs. This relatively new field combines pharmacology and genomics to develop effective, safe medications and doses that will be tailored to a person's genetic makeup. This podcast is dedicated to pharmacists with an interest in learning more about the data analytics, industry trends, and evidence-based usage of pharmacogenomics. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Rami. And my name is Becky Winslow. And we are hosts of the PGX for Pharmacists podcast. The PGX for Pharmacists podcast is the most listened to pharmacy podcast in the nation. And Wilt Magazine in 2020 recognized the podcast as one of the top 20 genomics podcasts in the world. If you are new to the podcast, well, hopefully not, you're not new, but. <laughs> on the PGX for Pharmacies podcast, we explore all pharmacogenomics related topics. And our mission is to educate and advocate for PGX as a standard of care in medication therapy management. Becky is a pharmacogenomics subject matter expert and a consultant for multiple stakeholders in the PGX industry. And I'm the pharmacogenomics medical science liaison and mentor to pharmacists wanting to know more on the clinical side. So connect with us on LinkedIn and let's get um, started with a meaningful conversation. Today's podcast episode is unique. As Benaz and I are not interviewing other PGX industry experts, and instead we are sharing our expert perspectives on the current state of and future projections for the pharmacogenomics industry. Yes, that is right, Becky. So with that being said, let's start, let's jump in right into the hot topics currently affecting the PGX testing industry. So Becky, let's discuss the current third-party reimbursement for PGX testing and why third-party reimbursement is still a barrier in the clinical implementation of PGX in the community setting, um, despite all the PGX being practiced in academic settings for decades now. And both academic and commercial entities have having published research to support the clinical and economic benefits of PGX testing, but we're still not there. So let's, you know... Talk about that. Yeah, Benaz, I cannot think of a more critical topic right now than third-party reimbursement um, when discussing the current state and future projections for the PGX industry. Um, As diagnostic testing company layoffs, including laboratories offering PGX, have really dominated LinkedIn posts in the last few weeks. 
Um, quite frankly, the diagnostic testing industry is at a tipping point where um, current third-party reimbursements and projected future reductions in third-party reimbursements for clinical tests are actually threatening patients' access to diagnostic testing. One way to look at it is that laboratories in general and small laboratories specifically, due to poor third-party reimbursements, are struggling to even retain the staff needed to perform the laboratory testing, um, not to mention um, struggling to fund innovative new testing or research to develop new testing. And PGX testing is not an exception to this trend. Well, that's really terrible to hear, um, Becky, especially when you mentioned the in just a week, there's all these uh, LinkedIn posts. But again, thanks for mentioning that the diagnostic testing in general is in a state of uncertainty uncertainty, like maybe that's a good word to use, but pharmacists in particular, because the laboratory industry is not the area of expertise, they fail to recognize, I think, the PGX testing is only one of the multitude of diagnostic tests and that factors um, in influencing the entire diagnostic testing industry also affect PGX testing. So I think we missed that. So can you elaborate on the factors affecting the diagnostic testing industry in general before we kind of dive deeper into PGX testing as a whole? Absolutely, Benaz. Um, as of November the 21st, 2022, um, today, <laughs> the hottest topic in the laboratory testing industry is PAMA. Um, Congress passed PAMA, or the Protecting Access to Medicare Act of 2014. Um, PAMA's goal was to ensure Medicare doesn't run out of money and patients continue to have access to routine health care, including laboratory testing. Yeah, that would now, not be that would not be good if you run out of mon Medicare money. Yeah. Back that would not be good. <laughs> Because you and I, as well as many other workers, have a long way to go before retirement. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so while PAMA's intentions were good, uh, PAMA's drastic reimbursement cuts and reporting requirements for laboratories have already negatively affected laboratories' ability to provide quality testing for patients. I mean, as I mentioned previously, some smaller labs are struggling to maintain the staff that they need simply to run laboratory tests. So um, their infrastructure is threatened. Um, so I won't go any deeper into PAMA except to say that Congress is voting in December on the SALSA Act or Saving Access to Laboratory Services Act, which was uh, written to try to counteract the cuts and reimbursements that the PAMA Act um, will continue to make if an intervention is not made. So I'll just leave you with this. Um, if SALSA is not passed, Reimbursement for clinical laboratory tests, including PGX, will be cut up to an additional 15% in 2023. And that's yeah, quite a significant 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I'll just refer listeners that are interested in learning more to visit www.stoplabcuts.org. That's awesome. I, I like the website they came up with. Very, yeah. very intuitive. Okay. Well, now that you provided an update on the laboratory industry in general, um, can we kind of drill down into PGX testing reimbursement? I know you're an expert in that space, Becky. So what's the current state of the third-party PGX testing coverage and reimbursement? I know a lot of people want to know about that. Yeah, I wish I could say, Benaz, that I was, um, I self-selected myself to be an expert in third-party pharmacogenomics test reimbursement. Um, but the truth of the matter is that since I began um, consulting in pharmacogenomics over eight years ago, reimbursement has seen its ups and its downs. And quite frankly, in the last couple of years, I've had to master the knowledge of what payers want to see as far as medical necessity goes so that um, I could provide better consultation for the stakeholders in the pharmacogenomics market, market, excuse me. So absolutely, third-party reimbursement is undoubtedly one of the most critical factors in the widespread clinical implementation of PGX in the community setting. Um, I'll provide my personal opinion. It doesn't reflect the mm, opinions of anyone else. I'm well, saying. your opinion is important and, and we appreciate it. It's an expert um, opinion. <laughs> yeah, my personal opinion having... Um, honed my expertise in this area is that with a few exceptions, uh, payers for the most part, um, except for Medicare, for example, the Medicare area contractor Moldex, and let's just say United Healthcare, for example, um, for the most part, third-party payers, in my opinion, are not staffed appropriately to keep up with advancements in pharmacogenomic testing and the research data illustrating the clinical and economic benefits of PGX testing. And therefore, they don't feel confident um, in making reimbursement decisions about PGX testing on their own. Wow. Okay. Well, that's not good. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it. Um, the medical staff or the medical advisors um, for payers, they can't have an expert in every subject. Um, That's that true. That would yeah. be costly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as a result, many payers have resorted to deferring PGX reimbursement decisions to third-party laboratory benefit managers. Now, hmm. yeah. More middleman, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> um, benefit manager can be a trigger for pharmacists um, because yes. of pharmacy benefit managers. Um, and I'll tell you that laboratory benefit managers operate in a similar fashion as pharmacy benefit managers in that they review the clinical and economic evidence for laboratory tests and make determinations um, as to whether the payer will 
recoup their return on their investment over the time the beneficiary is a member in the health plan. Mm -hmm. um, I'll leave my I'll leave my um, personal comments about you know whether their intentions are pure versus pharmacy benefit managers. <laughs> I'll leave that out of this conversation. Okay. Um, we'll take but, it offline. We'll take it offline. Yeah, we'll take that offline. Um, but they they work in a similar fashion, not the same fashion. Now I'll say that except for Medicare. Payers such as United Healthcare, Cigna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, et cetera, they want to see a return on their investment in a PGX test within approximately 18 months because a beneficiary typically remains in um, the Buco plans for around 18 months. Um, so Medicare is the exception because mm -hmm. Of course, elderly become Medicare qualified and they remain in that program for way longer than 18 months for the most part. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. So um, you're saying they have the short side view, basically, is what I heard you say. <laughs> yeah. they, okay. they, have their, they have their pocketbooks in mind. Yeah, um, and that, 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 that makes sense what you're saying. You know, people change plans, they might not be there, so they want a shorter return on their investment. I, I get that. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So what specific differences exist in the reimbursement between third party? And then you mentioned, I think, Blue Cross, uh, Blue Shield and the government payers like Medicare and Medicaid. And I know yeah. Medicaid is, is a little bit more tricky because every state is different. But um, yeah. 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 So I'll first tell you some similarities between the payers and then I'll delve into their differences. Um, and I guess the similarities are the positives. Um, the fact that the payers now have similarities is a good thing. I mean, we've come a long way. Um, there is some consensus now in what PGX is reimbursed and what isn't. Mm -hmm. So across the board, third-party PGX payers favor reactive PGX testing over preemptive PGX testing. Um, True. Yeah. You know, you know, you know the difference between the two. For those of our listeners who, who might not know, um, so most payers require a patient to have experienced an adverse drug event or to have failed a drug in the same therapeutic class um, as the medication for which the prescriber wants to order a PGX test. Um, as their definition of the medical necessity for people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that in Walgreens days. It was just rejection, rejection until you try all these things. And it was, yeah, I remember that. Exactly. In that now, space. You know, the good news about that is that, yes, they've agreed to pay for some PGX. The bad news is that we are, payers are still supporting that trial and error process. Um, but... <laughs> But yeah, don't some of this also related to the pharma world where uh, they have a say on what medication is in that insurance formulary? Maybe that has something to do with that as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the discussion that we're having today isn't even taken into consideration, um, like PBM formularies for medication. True. You know, um, 
because those are based on population health and not patient specific. So absolutely. Now, further good news is that most, if not all payers who do pay for PGX testing have agreed that the drug gene pairs with actionable CPIC guidelines are medically necessary. So they will reimburse those. Um, they all good news. Great news, Becky. Yeah, that's great. News. Absolutely. <laughs> that's great news. Um, so while they have may have other factors that, um, in other words, might rule a patient out for PGX, when they do agree to pay, they, they do typically recognize CPIC. Hmm. So let's look at... Um, I told you that I look that we look at some distinctions between payer policies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all the similarities you got. Only two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we can have an entire episode dedicated to uh, detailing the um, different payers and their similarities and differences, but we only have uh, what thirty minutes or so. Oh, like, you know, that reminds me. Um, <laughs> we could. That would be our. That would could be a future episode. Absolutely. I'm down. Absolutely. So for um, the bucas, or that's what I refer to them as: um, Blue Cross Blue Shield, United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, and Humana. Reimbursement is reactive, uh, with a few exceptions, such as. Um, For most payers that do reimburse um, CYP2C19 genotyping for um, Plavix, they will reimburse it preemptive to the patient with um, ACS undergoing um, PCI. So that is an example of preemptive coverage. That's awesome. But just for the audience, because this is really cool when I heard it, the BUCA that you're talking about, B-U-C-A-H, and that was Blue Cross, United mm-hmm. Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, Humana. I think I like that. Okay. Yes. Okay. I just had to say it again. It just sounded nice. BUCA. <laughs> and that's what that's, it stands for. So That's an easy way to, to remember um, mm-hmm. those payers. Um, and in general, the BUCAs tend to follow the Medicare area contractor known as MoldyX. They tend to follow their policies um, when they're deciding to reimburse drug gene payers. Now, United Healthcare, for example, they only reimburse drug gene payers for mental health issues and a select few others. Like, for example, they they follow CPICS guidelines, but not to the extent that um, MoldyX and some of the other BUCAs um, follow CPIC. Well, it's in the right direction. Yeah, they're, they're, well, they, they were actually one of the first to cover PGX. So United they, Healthcare? Yes, exactly. So they were progressive. Nice. They were progressive. Okay, so Medicare, let's talk about Medicare. Um, Our audience may not be aware of this, but the Medicare, the state in which a laboratory is physically located affects whether their PGX test is reimbursed by Medicare. Um, And the country is broken down, the states in the country are broken down into different Medicare area contractors. 
Um, Moldy X, for example, um, covers, like I've referred to previously, they cover CPIC actionable gene drug pairs. Um, but again, it's specific to the Medicare area contractor. So it's where the lab is located, not where the patient is located. Yeah. Um, so that's an important consideration when choosing a pharmacogenomics laboratory, but that's a discussion for an entirely other episode. Nice. Can't wait. <laughs> we got big plans for 2023. So. Right. All right. Um, and lastly, but certainly not least, Medicaid. Um, Medicaid is state dependent and there's 50 states. So um, quite frankly, there's almost 50 different, <laughs> there's almost 50 different um, reimbursement policies. The one thing that Medicaid seems to have in common is that um, many state Medicaids will require that a genetic counselor screen the patient before they get a PGX test to determine that the test is medically necessary. Hmm. And they also require the genetic counselor to follow up with the patient on their PGX test results. So does a genetic counselor can be a farm D can be a, but they have to have some kind of special yeah. education in the genetic space. I'm assuming some right. kind of different credentialing. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. They, they look at more holistic approach, I guess. Right. Um, they look at it. I think state Medicaid's again, this goes back to them not having the appropriate staff to determine <laughs> what you know, what is necessary and who needs to be involved in PGX. That's true. Um, you know, they're looking at it as another genetic test. Mm -hmm. That's true. Makes yeah, sense. Another genetic test. Okay. Um, and one last thing before we, we move on is that um, something else that is affecting PGX laboratories and their decision to proceed with offering pharmacogenomics testing is that um, MoldyX, the um, Medicare area contractor I mentioned previously, they are requiring all PGX laboratories to submit their tests for technical assessments. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, previously, Laboratory developed tests did not have to prove um, or provide these technical assessments. Um, just the fact that they were CLIA certified or CAP certified um, was enough. But now MoldyX is requiring uh, laboratories to show to MoldyX the payer mm -hmm. that their test is analytically valid it's clinically valid and it's clinically useful. Um, quite frankly, some laboratories are choosing to simply not submit the technical assessment just because the whole process is, is cost prohibitive, especially to some of these smaller labs. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, we, we want all that, which is a great transition, which when we're talking about um, when I want to talk about outcomes, right? Um, 
Mm-hmm. Becky, so when we say, you know, when we say outcomes is important for adoption and payers, we talk a lot about payers because that's what's going to move PGX forward. What does that really look like? And can you, can we break it down for our listeners a little bit? Sure. So I think a great example of how a research has been conducted and published um, with the payer's perspective in mind. Um, you know, as academians, we are accustomed to publishing data about clinical outcomes and maybe not the economic outcomes, but payers are highly vested in economic outcomes. So mm-hmm. I think one of the best examples of a of research that has been conducted specific to what payers want to see is the research that Corio Life Sciences has conducted in collaboration with the Kentucky Teachers Retirement System, where they implemented pharmacogenomics testing. It was pharmacist driven. Nice. Yeah. I got that right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And they tracked clinical as well as economic outcomes um, within that group. And they did this because the payer was the Kentucky Teachers Retirement System. It's self-funded. And, you know, they believed in PGX enough to implement it in their population, but they wanted to see what are the actual outcomes. We want to see data from those outcomes. So that is a great example of research that has been conducted to satisfy payers. Um, And uh, non-self-funded plans are equally as interested in that type of data. Yeah, I can see that, both clinical and the cost. It makes makes sense to have both, but I I can only imagine the cost that goes into it, the time, the cost. Right. I mean, one of the hardest things I had to learn, Benaz, as a clinician (laughs) was that no matter how wonderful a clinical product was in clinical outcomes, if a payer did not view those clinical outcomes, if it did not view that they translated into economic outcomes, if you don't have a payer, then you don't have a clinical product. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's really what we're looking at. And that's why I encourage any pharmacists that I see um, maybe talking about how they're in PGS consulting to please document your outcomes. That's the kind of data that is going to be critical for further adoption and widespread implementation of PGX. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the clinicians want to know the outcomes of patients, the payers, and this really that's really what's going to drive. Um, we talk about driving PGX forward. That's really the key. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. This, that makes so, a lot of sense. This is the way I pitch it to pharmacists. If pharmacists can think about what pharmacists have had to do <laughs> to prove <laughs> that their clinical interventions are not just great clinically, but economically, mm-hmm. it's the same standard for other novel products such as PGX, where we can't just say that it's a great clinical product. We have to prove it. That is very correct. Yeah. 
That's, we can have a whole op- episode on that, on just that. Absolutely. And what does it Absolutely. look like? And how do you get there? And what do we mean? What are the ways you can do such a thing and uh, get involved in that? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. That's key. So uh, let me get off my let me get off my soapbox about. Oh no! But I was loving it. Okay. <laughs> and um, I think we can all acknowledge that the Ballot Act has also been a major topic of discussion within the laboratory industry. It definitely affects pharmacogenomics as well. It has. So, it does. Manon, can you update our audience on the Ballot Act and where are we? And- Oh my gosh. Yes, yes. I love it. So let me first describe what the Valid Act is. So, you know, the audience can get a little better idea. So first of all, Valid Act, the Valid stands for Verifying Accurate Leading Edge um, uh, IVCT Development. So it's it's, it's there to establish a federal regulatory framework for the oversight of laboratory developed tests, or they call it LDT, laboratory developed tests. So to simplify it even further, the Valid Act was really created because there was a demand for some kind of regulation for all these laboratories that are developing their own uh, standards so that it can be more regulated and uniform across the board and is, is validated. We, we talk about a lot about that as well. So this can help in the long run, and we talk about this all the time, in more of the adoption of the test and payer reimbursement. So for example, imagine if for a same test you get done, you have various different results depending on which lab you select. So we really can't have that. So the Valid Act, if it's passed in December of this year, Becky, you paying attention, FDA will reach out to the uh, to industry and stakeholders to figure out how to develop the, these regulations as directed by the law, including um, on coming to an understanding but uh, of how to define these validations and what validation looks like under different circumstances. So it's really not as easy and uh, well, you know, easy. It's a little complicated, but that's why it's, it's, they say it takes about what, five years to develop these guidelines. Because again, if you think about it, finding out how many tests are on the market that need regulation to begin with, and do some of those tests have the moderate risk category? So we're just talking in general, not just PGX, right, at this time. But so, you know, a lot of tests have just high risk or low risk. So do some of these tests have the moderate risk as well in, in category, like high, moderate, and low? And then many more other things that I have to figure out. So all these tests are going to be subject to the same framework. And everybody is expected to be analytically and clinically valid. Um, or, um, um, you know, or how about some tests that make claims without strong science, science behind it, supporting their results and claims, right? We see a lot of that. So valid act will help with the credibility, the validity and predictability of predictability of the tests out there. And of course that leads to consistent standard across the board. And again, as we've talked about this, the goal is to have great valid, um, you know, great adoption and valid outcomes again, to drive the adoption of these tests. And for the sake of this podcast, we are talking about PGX, but that valid act is for really any laboratory testing. So if you want to learn more about the valid act, which is really cool, uh, I haven't even touched a small amount of it. I highly recommend you go to cap.org, which is cap.org and listen to Dr. Emily Volk, um, who is the president of um, 
CAP or College of American Pathologists. So um, Becky, should we put the link out there in the show notes for people to see? <laughs> Absolutely. We can put the link to that as well as some of the other yeah. um, items that we've discussed. We can put links to them in the comments as well. Yeah. So these are really the hottest topic right now, but they're, they're not the only topics. And I don't want us to um, cause information overload on our speaker and um, um, our audience. So maybe moving into 2023, I know we have more topics and we'll dive deeper into each one of these, but in different topics. So what do you think, Becky? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've provided a lot of great information today and we want you guys to be able to digest what we've told you today. Yeah. Cause um, you know, you and I can take it offline and talk for two more hours on this, but you know, I don't think listeners with <laughs> information overload, but we want to make sure our listeners don't get tired of listening to us talk. So we're going to try to break it down into independent episodes for you guys going into 2023 so stay tuned. We've got some big developments coming for you in 2023. Yeah, there's again, don't don't forget, there's no other place to go for all your PGX needs. We do a lot of PGXing on here, the science, the implementation, uh, the reimbursement piece of PGX. So we want to also hear from you. So let us know what you're thinking by leaving us a review and let us know what other topics you want to hear on our next episode. But before we go, Becky. What is the next topic of our discussion that you said you're excited to share with the audience? I don't think I, I even know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to talk about ontogeny. Mm. Ontogeny. Yeah. I like that. Okay. Well, leave us in suspense. Leave us in suspense. That's fine. Yeah. So if you don't know what ontogeny is, maybe give it a review. And Hopefully, by the time we get to 2023, I'll have a great discussion for you on ontogeny and how it's underestimated in the clinical implementation of pharmacogenomics currently. That's right. Thank That's you, right. So Yeah, don't Yeah, and don't forget to download the Convey Med podcast app. You can subscribe there and listen to all of their other episodes. But thank you, Becky. Thanks for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For all of our episodes, please visit pgx4rx.com. That's pgx4rx.com.